You know, um, whenever I'm faced with a crisis that requires faith for healing specifically, I, I, turn to script, I turn to Scripture, I begin reading the Bible in an attempt to discover what kind of faith pleases God. I want to know what kind of faith pleases God, and perhaps you've been there before as well, and uh, you've been in a crisis before, and you need answers, and you need to know what kind of faith does God respond to. And today, I want to talk about what Jesus saw as great faith. And we are going to uh, read three different stories in the Bible uh, and see how Jesus responded to each person's level of faith. Because each person brought a different level of faith to the table and Jesus responded differently to each person. And we're going to start with the person who appears to have brought the least amount of faith. And we're going to work our way up from there. And my prayer every Sunday is that the Lord would use me to speak the truth. But I would also... I would also urge every person in the room, don't take my word for it, uh, but read the Bible for yourself and measure my Sunday messages with what you see in the Bible. And, you know, I do my best to leave my biases and my previous ideas uh, at the door when I prepare a message. But, hey, I'm still young. I make mistakes. I don't get everything right. And I'm, I'm fully willing to admit that. And so read these stories for yourself and ask the Lord to teach you about faith. And I'm going to bring, uh, I'm going to bring my thoughts. I'm going to bring what the Lord, I, I believe, has laid on my heart for this morning. And I hope to stir your faith this morning. That is the goal, is to get your faith stirred. And so if you're here in this place, and uh, how many of you know we are, we're, we're a charismatic church? We are a charismatic church, and you know the word charismatic has been tossed around over the over the years, and uh, I think a lot of people are really skeptical of charismatic churches if you're not familiar with the charismatic church. But charismatic, the word charismatic just means that we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, that we believe uh, that the Holy Spirit is still moving and active, and we, we invite Him into our Sunday messages. And how many of you know that uh, if the presence of God doesn't show up, then then it's all for nothing. It's pointless. We're just a group of people gathering around and singing songs and kumbaya and patting each other on the back and having coffee and donuts. And that's about it. But you know what? <clears throat> when the spirit of God shows up, when the presence of God shows up and he, he does something that only he can do. And, and that's what we're here for. We're here to seek the presence of God. And we're here to invite the Holy Spirit into our everyday lives. And so uh, if you're here this morning and you have a physical need, that you are, you have something in your body that needs healing, I want you to, to open up your ears and open up your heart to today's message and receive it because this message is for you, okay? I'm going to be talking more specifically about healing today. And it's not something that I usually do. Because uh, I think that uh, when you talk about healing in a church, my, my worry and my I think every pastor's concern when you start talking about the gifts of the spirit is that the gifts would be promoted above the gift giver and that that healing would become that that end all be all like we're trying to see this. And if we don't see this, then we're failing. But you know what? Uh, the gifts of the spirit are all an outpouring of God's grace and his goodness and his love towards us. And so we're here to pursue Jesus. We're here to pursue the gift giver. And, and as a result, we get to experience the gifts of the spirit. Amen. And so I'm excited to dive in today. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter nine. <clears throat> it's the second book of the new Testament. If you put your, if you put your, uh, your your thumb maybe like you know two-thirds of the way through the bible open it up there you'll hit the new testament mark it goes matthew mark luke john mark chapter nine and we're going to be in verses 14 through 29 are you ready when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd gathered around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran, ran to greet him. Jesus asked, what are, you argue, what are you arguing with them about? And a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And Jesus was really encouraging. He says, you unbelieving generation. <laughs> How long? Thank you, Gideon. How long shall I stay, stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. 
And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But here's his level of faith. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said, if I can, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, this, this story hit me hard this last week. Because when you're a father and you realize the desperation of this man, you just you put yourself in his shoes, right? <clears throat> Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this can come out only by prayer. Some translations say prayer and fasting. I love this story because this man, this father, at many moments in my life has been me. Maybe it's been you. Where you pray for something and you say, God, I believe. I read the Bible and I believe that you're the miracle worker. I believe that you make a way where there's no way. But I have this doubt. And I see the storm around me. And I see the circumstance. And I see people telling me that it's hopeless. And I need help with my unbelief. I feel for this father because I've been here before. Help me overcome my own belief. My, my, my unbelief. Has anybody else been there before? Have you experienced this before? Jesus was surrounded by people with little faith. The disciples had little faith. They couldn't, they, Jesus said, you, you, you have too little faith. You could, they couldn't drive out the spirit. And this father had very little faith. This father had, if you can, faith. That's the kind of faith he brought to the table. God, if you can. Jesus, if you can. Your disciples couldn't do it. The doctors couldn't do it. The, the, everybody else who I've brought them to, the priests, the, the teachers of the law, everybody I've brought my boy to since he was born, they couldn't do it. So if you can, please have mercy on us and help us. It's not much faith. And he looks at him and he says, everything is possible for one who believes. And this man, after Jesus said that, he cries out with two things. Number one, he cries out with a declaration of what little faith he does have. He says, I do believe. And he declares what little faith he's bringing to the table. He's saying, Jesus, this is all I got. I do believe, but this is all I've got. And the second thing he does is he prays and asks Jesus to provide help for the doubt that he has. He says, help me, though, to overcome my unbelief. Jesus, this is all I've got to bring. I've got this much faith. It's just a little bit. I do believe you can do this, but I've got all this unbelief. I've got all this doubt, and I need you to help me. I need you to come alongside me and provide the faith where I do not have the faith for this. And Jesus immediately responds to this man's prayer by casting out the evil spirit from the boy. See, despite the man's little faith, Jesus still answers this man's request for his son. You know, recently, I've seen a lot of people treat doubt like a virtue. And I hear people tell others that doubting is a healthy part of following Jesus, that it's necessary to question God's word in order to discover the truth, that we often all go through seasons of doubt. It's a healthy thing. And let me be clear, there is grace for doubt, as we see in this story. There's grace for it. Jesus responds in the midst of doubt, oftentimes to provide you with more faith. That's why he responds in the midst of doubt. Oftentimes God responds to your doubt so that he can build your faith. Because if if God does it once in your story, if God provides a miracle once in your story, the next time you need that same thing, you don't have permission anymore to look at that same thing and go, God can't do that because you just saw him do it. Right? So every time he does something in your life, suddenly you now have the faith to go, God did it once, he can do it again. We serve the same God. If God did it for them, he can do it for me. But, you know, doubt is not a virtue. Doubt is in conflict with faith. James 1, 5 through 8 says this. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person, person is, a double, is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Doubt is not a virtue. It's in conflict with faith. It's in conflict with what God wants you to, what God wants to do in your life. He doesn't want you to doubt him. He wants you to have full confidence in him. But there's grace for doubt. Yes, there is. But eventually that doubt needs to be replaced by faith. Amen. Matthew 18, 2, Jesus talks about how unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And little children have this honest and humble trust in their parents, don't they? Imagine a father who tells his child not to drink the chemicals under the kitchen sink. I've got this little baby. He's almost one, Leo, and he's crawling all over the house. And he loves to bolt to the drawer, the cabinet right under the kitchen sink. And he grabs the, the bar cleaner powder and he starts to, he wants to suck on it. And he wants to drink the chemicals under the sink. And I have to stop him and say, don't do that. And we, we got to get a lock figured out or something. My dad, but you know, Imagine a father who's telling his, his child, don't drink what's under the kitchen sink. And somebody else comes along and says, hey, it's okay to doubt your father. It's okay to doubt his intentions towards you. You know, if that doubt is left unaddressed for too long, it will lead to the child harming himself. And the devil used the same lie to create doubt in Eve's mind in the very beginning and created separation from God. The devil came to Eve and said, now it's okay to doubt that God has good intentions for you. God is trying to keep you from something that, that's desirable, Eve. He's trying to keep you from becoming like him. It's okay to doubt your father. And it led to Eve, to Adam and Eve's and humanity's separation from God. It was believing the lies of the enemy. Doubt is not a virtue. It's something that needs to be confiscated by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus provides the faith that this man needed to free his son because the man asked for help. And faith was given to this man as a gift by Jesus. He said, where you lack the faith, I'll bring it for you. I will give you the faith where you don't have it. I will give it to you as a gift in order so that I can build your faith and build your trust in me. That you can put your trust in me. So that's the first man. The first story, he brings this little amount of faith. He, said, he, he had this if-you-can faith. The next story is in Matthew chapter 8. Turn with me to Matthew 8. <clears throat> We're going to start at the top. It says, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing... You can make me clean. The first man had if you can faith. This man has if you're willing faith. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. See, the leper... He had a bit more faith than the previous father. He, he said, you can make me clean. I know you can do it. I'm just not sure if you're willing. I'm not sure if you want to heal me. I'm not sure if you're that good. Now, to understand the significance of this moment, we have to realize what ancient people thought about leprosy. Leprosy was a terrible infectious skin disease that involved the degeneration of skin tissue. It caused the body to be disfigured, and sometimes parts of the body would rot and fall off of the person. It was a terrible disease. And leprosy in ancient times was considered to be a curse from God. In Numbers chapter 12, Miriam was stricken with leprosy for her rebellion against Moses. Elijah's servant, Gehazi, was stricken for his greed in 2 Kings 5. David's curse on Joab's descendants included leprosy in 2 Samuel 3. King Uzziah was stricken with leprosy because he presumptuously offered incense in the temple in 2 Chronicles 26. See, leprosy was about as bad as it could get. It was incurable. It was deadly. It was the equivalent of modern-day cancer, except that leprosy was much more evident 
and ugly. It was on the surface. You could see it. And it was, it was, it was known to be a curse from God, that God did this to a person because of their sin. That's what people thought about it. Leprosy was a kind of living death, and it had sweeping implications. And once someone was declared a leper, uh, according to Leviticus chapter 13, there's this process that a man had to go through, that the priest had to go through to declare someone to be a leper. And once all these tests were performed and they were declared to be a leper, uh, they were cut off from contact with society, and they had to do these things. The leper had to display marks of mourning. As if he was already dead. Therefore, it would have been, uh, if you were to touch a leper, you would be defiled because you are touching something that's dead. And so no, this, this, a leper would not have experienced an embrace or a touch by anyone for years and years and years, for the remainder of their life. A leper also had to tear his clothes and uncover his head and cover up his lips. And when someone drew near to him, the leper had to cry out to that person, unclean, unclean. Don't come near me. It was shameful. It was, it was lonely. And he had to remain outside the camp, according to Leviticus 13. And, and naturally, the leper had no access to the temple. They had no access to even Jerusalem. They were a complete outcast. They had to, they had to separate from society. They had to be alone. And they would hang out in these leper camps together. And that was the only community that they had was with other lepers. Have you ever prayed to God, unsure if God wants to answer you or heal you? Have you ever felt so much shame from your sin and thought that maybe God was punishing you? That maybe God had cursed you? That maybe you deserve what you have? That you had it coming to you? A lot of people think like this. A lot of people think, I deserve what, what's coming to me. I, God did this to me. And I deserve this. Maybe you, you think you deserve the pain. But how does Jesus respond to if you're willing faith? Jesus does something amazing. He gives this man the first touch that he's had in years and years and years. And instead of defiling himself, Jesus makes the leper clean by laying his hands on him. He says to him, I do want to heal you. I am willing And he reaches out and he touches the man and he makes him clean. And then something amazing happens. He tells him, now don't advertise this healing to anybody, but instead go to the priest and be inspected and be declared clean by the priest. And, you know, tucked away in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, after chapter 13, is chapter 14. That's math for you right there. That's numbers. Chapter 14 of Leviticus, it set down the process by which the priest could declare a cured leper clean. But here's the thing, is all those years, Leviticus chapter 14 was a sleeper text. And it laid untouched and unused since the beginning of the law's creation. Because nobody had ever needed to use it. Nobody had ever declared a leper clean before. Had it never happened. But this priest, on this particular day gets the unique opportunity to use a chapter of the Bible that's never been used before and to declare a leper clean. It's almost as if God stuck that chapter in the Bible from the very beginning, knowing that one day my son will come on the scene and he'll use this chapter. He will make a leper clean and he will set people free from their sickness and their disease. How does Jesus respond to if you can faith and if you're willing faith? He says, I can heal you, and I want to heal you. I will heal you. Turn with me, or keep, it's actually the next verse, (laughs) verse 5. Matthew 8, verse 5 is the final story. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion, he doesn't have if you can faith. He doesn't have if you're willing faith. He has say the word faith. Say the word and I know my servant will be healed. For I myself, here's here's an important part. I myself am a man under authority. 
with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was, say it with me, amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness while they'll, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's referring to the Jews who will not accept Jesus. He's referring to the people of Israel who this, uh, the salvation is for the Jews first. It, it, was, it was brought to them first, but he's saying that many of them are going to be cast out and they're not going to enjoy the feast because they're not going to believe in me. But many Gentiles. That's you and I, church, unless you're, unless you're a Jew in this place, and welcome. I'm glad you're here. But you and I, we're the Gentiles. We're the ones from the east and the west who get to feast at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is pr- prophesying this. Many will come from all around. The Gentiles will come. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done as you, as, as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Did you know there's only two instances in the Bible where it says that Jesus was amazed? The first story is right here, what we just read. In Matthew 8, he's amazed at the centurion's great faith. The second story is in Mark chapter 6, where he visits his hometown, and he's amazed at the people's lack of faith. Only one thing amazes Jesus. It's faith. Either the fullness of it or the lack of it. Nothing impresses Jesus except faith. If you have great faith, he goes, that's amazing. And if you don't have faith, he's like, man, that's amazing. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I want Jesus to be impressed by my faith. I want him to be amazed at my faith. So what made this man's faith so impressive to Jesus? What, What made this man's faith so great that it knocked Jesus off his socks? The centurion spoke to Jesus about authority. And when a person has authority, he can give a command and know for certain that it will be carried out. When someone is the ultimate authority, there isn't anything stopping that person's orders from being fulfilled. And you know, as parents, we have authority. But when we speak a word to our child, what often happens? It's We get pushback, right? We get, we, we experience we experience pushback and oftentimes what we say doesn't come to pass and our, our words don't carry the weight that God's carry. Our words do carry weight, right? The power and death is in the life of the tongue, but we don't have ultimate authority. The president in America, we see the president as the ultimate authority. And regardless of what you believe about our current president, the, the ultimate idea, the, the, the thought behind it is that the president is the commander in chief of the military, that he can make the order, that he's the one in charge. He's the one that people look to. The president is the ultimate authority in our nation. But when the president makes an executive order, it can be met with pushback, can't it? From the opposite party or it may, it may contradict a previous law and it needs approval. His authority, although it carries weight, is not as final as what the centurion is declaring to Jesus. See, all earthly rulers, whether they be presidents or kings or prime ministers, they have limited authority and limited resources. But Jesus, on the other hand, he claimed this after his resurrection in Matthew 28. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have all authority, Jesus says. I, what I say goes. If I speak it, it's done. The universe was created when God said the word. Let there be light. Let this come into existence. Let this happen. Let this take place. And as soon as God speaks the word, as soon as he utters the word, it becomes real. It, it, it has existence suddenly. When God says the word, it becomes alive. There's nothing that stops his words from being fulfilled. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says this. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire to achieve 
the purpose for which I sent it. God is saying that every time I speak a word, that word will always accomplish what I set it to achieve. It will never come back to me empty. It will never fall to the ground. Anytime I speak something, it always accomplishes what I meant for it to accomplish. So when God says that by his stripes, by my stripes, you are healed, it's done. Now, you may not have experienced the manifestation, but you, your response now is to say amen to God's yes. God has said yes. By my stripes, you are healed. I've spoken it into existence. You have it now. And oftentimes, we need to come under the submission of God's word and receive that in our life. See, what impressed Jesus was that the centurion had absolute confidence that Jesus says the word and it's done. He had say the word faith. The chapter continues to describe, it goes on in Matthew 8 to describe Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. And then it says that Jesus healed a multitude of other people from sicknesses and diseases. And then Matthew, to close the chapter, he quotes, no, he doesn't close the chapter, but he, he closes that segment of healings with Isaiah chapter 53. He quotes from Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He said it. It left his mouth. And, and if you're not experiencing that healing in your life, don't lose hope and don't doubt because when God sets out a word, it always accomplishes what it's meant to achieve, right? The prophet Isaiah wrote these words 700 years before Jesus was even born. Phew. What? And somehow this centurion knew that Jesus had the authority and needed only to say the word. That's all you got to do, Jesus. Just speak it. Speak it into existence, and it'll be done. Notice that in all these miracles, Jesus responds to every level of faith. No matter how much faith somebody brings to the table, Jesus responds to it. He isn't amazed by all of them, but he responds to all of them because of his overwhelming goodness. His his overwhelming love for people and compassion for people. He responds to everyone, no matter what level of faith they bring to the table. We are all on different journeys and different walks of life. We're all different ages spiritually. Some of you are brand new to the faith, and you're, you're, you're baby Christians. Welcome. I'm glad you're in the family. And you have faith that is still being built. You have things that you're still learning. And some of you have been following Jesus for years and years and years. And you've got big faith. You, you, when you pray, it's just confident. I, I look forward to that day. Because I, I'm not always there yet. We're all on different journeys. But Jesus has grace and he's got compassion and he's got goodness. That he wants to give everybody at every level of their faith. His goodness, if his goodness were dependent upon our level of faith, then it could be earned by our own making. If his goodness were dependent on how much faith we bring to the table, then we'd go, I just need to try harder. I just need to believe harder. I just need to do this. And I, and we have these, these obstacles in our mind. We have this doubt. We have circumstances and we got voices speaking in our head. And oftentimes it just sounds like chaos and we're going, God, I just need to try harder. I just need to do more. And Jesus is saying, Hey, just bring me what faith you have and pray for the rest. I'll help you with the unbelief because I want to build your faith. I don't want you to stay where you're at. I don't want you to stay with little faith. I want to build your faith. So bring what faith you have to the table and keep, keep coming to me with that level of faith. Keep pressing in and I'll build your faith. And the more and more we read scripture and the more and more we praise and the more and more we hear the story of Jesus, our faith is built. Romans ten seventeen says faith comes by hearing and hearing the good news about Jesus. That your faith is built 
When you hear the good news about Jesus, the more time you spend in praise and worship and you sing these lyrics about Jesus on the cross and you let it wash over you, the more time that you read the word and you allow scripture just to penetrate your heart and the more time you get in community with fellow brothers and sisters who have testimonies of God's goodness and they begin to tell you what God has done in their life, your faith is built. And you start going on this journey of, of faith that gets built and built and built. Let me stop for a minute to do, I should have done this earlier, but I'm going to define just real quick what faith is. Maybe some of you don't know what exactly faith is and what the difference between faith and belief. And oftentimes those words, faith and belief, are used in conjunction with one another. And they're very similar, but they're a little different. But let me tell you what faith is not. Faith is not belief without proof or belief despite the evidence. That's the popular idea of faith, is that I don't see the evidence, I don't see the proof, but I'm going to choose to believe regardless. And our the, the picture that we get in our mind is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? Anybody seen this movie? And in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there's this part where he's got to overcome these three booby traps to get to the Holy Grail. And he gets to the second one, and he's got to jump over this chasm. It's just this bottomless pit beneath him, and, and all he, he's, got this, he's got this clue that tells him he just needs to take a leap of faith. And so what does Indiana Jones do? He closes his eyes. He doesn't know what's going to happen, and he chooses, I'm just going to do this despite the evidence, despite the proof, and I'm just going to, and he sticks out his foot, and he falls onto an invisible bridge. Oh, thank God, it catches him, right? And oftentimes, oftentimes that's what we think about faith is that I'm just going to go despite the proof, despite the lack of evidence. I'm going to put my faith in God. But that is not what faith is. Faith is actually the definition comes straight out of Hebrews 11.1. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. It's not hoping in what we hope for. And praying that it's there, it's confidence in what we hope for and assurance about we do not, of what we do not see. See, faith for Indiana Jones would be knowing for a fact that the invisible bridge was there. And so he's going to take a step because he already knows it's there. That's what faith is. Faith is confidence in what you hope for. It's certainty in what you do not see. The Greek word for faith in the New Testament is the word pistis. That's a fun word. Kind of want to say that when I'm mad. I'm just so pissed. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. All right. The Greek word for faith is pistis. My my son is in the room. Uh, and pistis means a holy conviction of the truth. It's a holy conviction of the truth. And pistis is the re, is the root word. Of the, of the other Greek word, pistua, which is translated as belief. So the root word for belief is actually faith. And it appears as though, when you read the book of James chapter 2, it, it appears as though there's two levels of belief. And when you look up the word belief, pistuo, in the Greek, you can say that, you can see that there's actually two levels of belief. The first level of belief would be to acknowledge that something is true. That you know something is true. See, one could say that they believe that God exists, but that knowledge alone doesn't make a difference in a person's life unless it changes how they interact with God and how they interact with others, right? The knowledge alone doesn't make a difference, but it's putting that knowledge into action, into practice, into deeds that makes the difference in belief. The second level of belief requires entrusting something to God, it's giving your life or reorienting, repositioning your life in a way that, that lives according to the truth that you already know is, is there. The combination of these two levels of belief equals faith. It's knowing the truth and acting upon it. James 2 confirms these two levels of belief by equating true faith with action or deeds. And he goes on, he talks over and over in James chapter 2, is what good is faith without works? What good is faith without deeds? I, you, you, you say you have faith, but show me. Show me by your actions. And what James is saying, that it's not enough to just know that God is real. It's not enough to just know the truth, but you've got to live according to the truth. That's why John 3.16, John 3.16 says, uh, for God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes, pistuo, in him, will not die but have eternal life. That word doesn't mean just an intellectual 
I believe. Now I'm going to heaven. That word actually means now I'm going to live my life according to that truth. I'm going to actually do a 180 and I'm going to reposition my life to start walking according to that truth. Because if you truly believed that, your life would look different. And James is talking about it. In James chapter 2, he's saying, show me your faith when you show me your works. He says that, uh, he, he talks about the demons. In, in chapter 2, verse 17 through 19, he says, in the same way faith by itself if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. You believe there's one God. Great, you have demon-level faith. You believe like demons. Good for you. Now put it into action. Walk in the way of that truth. See, what the demons have... They believe that there's one God, but what the demons have not done, they have not entrusted themselves to God in a manner that guides the way that they live and the way that they treat others according to God's command. The demons haven't done that. And James goes on to state that you cannot have true faith. You cannot truly believe in God unless you reposition your life to obey God's commands and entrust yourself to him. And he uses Abraham as an example, and he talks about how Abraham was credited righteousness because he believed God, and he offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice on the altar. He went through the motions. He said, God, I believe you. I trust you. You've given me this promise. You said that I will be the father of many nations, but you're asking me to kill my only son. I'm not sure how this works, God. How am I supposed to be a great, 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 grandfather if I don't even have a kid? But he trusted God, and he said, God, I'm not just going to say I trust you. I'll go through the motions, and I'll reorient my life to show you that I trust you. And he put his son on the altar. And we know the story that God stopped him from offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice, and he provided the sacrifice for him. It was a foreshadow of Jesus on the cross, that he provided Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. See, faith says, faith says, I believe that your words are true, so now I'm going to reposition my life to live according to that truth, and I'm going to ignore the lies and allow you to kill the doubt. That's what faith says. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Because we all need a miracle at some level in our life. We all get to a point in life where we need a miracle. We need God to step in. We need him to do something. And we can't control God like a marionette puppet. Right? God, I need you to do this for me. And so I'm going to put together the magic formula. I'm going to rub my belly three times and read the Bible and say this prayer and hail Mary, bam. Now I got what I need. We can't do that with God, can we? So what kind of faith does God respond to? Jesus is a master of metaphors. And he uses this mustard seed to describe the impact of faith. And we read Mark's account of Jesus delivering the boy. We, we read it already in Mark chapter uh, 9 of, of Jesus delivering the boy of the demon. But Matthew tells the same story. And in Matthew's account, he adds this at the very end of the story. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 19 through 20. The disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we drive out the demon? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This verse confuses me because Jesus is like, you have so little faith, guys. Come on, if you had faith just this big, you can move the mountain. And we're like, so the disciples, they had so little faith, they didn't even have that much faith? So it must take a lot of energy to create faith this big. It must take a lot of faith to just make this much, right? And that's our thought. We think, oh man, it just must, it must take so much energy. I don't have that kind of energy. I don't have that kind of faith. If I put all my energy into making faith and I make this much, man, what good does that do? And that's our thought about faith. But think about how you treat a seed. Think about when you, how many of you have ever planted a garden before or planted something in the ground? You take a seed, and what do you do with it? 
you bury it under the ground where you can't see it. And then what do you do? You put it under the ground. You can't see it. You don't know the transformation that's happening to it. But you pretend it's there, don't you? You act like it's there. You know it's there. So you water it. And you nurture it. And you give it the light that it needs. And you take care of that seed. And you, you, you tend to the seed because even though you can't see it, you know that it's there. And you know that one day it's going to come out of the ground and you're going to eat its fruit. And you're going to enjoy it. You're going to enjoy that seed. That's how we treat a seed. Right? Now, I realize that oftentimes I have more faith in a seed than I do in God. Both of them I can't see. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's working under the ground. I don't know what God is doing. I, I can't. But I, I have faith that that seed is going to give me tomatoes. Or whatever it is. Not tomatoes. I don't like tomatoes. <laughs> Both of them I cannot see. But here's the thing. We expect to see more from a seed that is buried than we do from a God who is risen. We expect to see more from a seed that's underground that is buried than a God who's alive and working. He's got the Holy Spirit moving all around us and inside of you. We expect to see more from something that we plant in the ground and we can't see than a God who said, it's done and you can have it. You have access to my spirit. You have access to everything. You have access to heaven's resources. And, and there's some of you might be in the room. You go, oh, slow down, pastor. Slow down. What about God's sovereignty? What about God's will? Sometimes it's God's will for us to suffer. Sometimes it's God's will for us to, to go through stuff. Can I just tell you, church, what kind of, you know what? Hey, let me, let me, let me back up. Okay. God uses suffering. There, Every, every follower of Jesus needs to have a healthy view of suffering because if you got into this faith thinking that everything was going to be peachy, I'm sorry, but you're going to be so disappointed because Jesus promised suffering. He promised that things would get hard. And so we need to have a healthy view of suffering, that God uses our suffering for the good, but he doesn't cause it. I don't believe God causes suffering. It's a conflict with who he is. He's a good and gracious God who is a giver of all things good. He's holy. He's beautiful. He's set apart. And he has good gifts he wants to give you. And just like you and I, we're parents to our kids. How many of us want to curse our kids with something to teach them a lesson? It'll make them a better person. If I could just break their arm right here, it'll make them more dependent upon me as a dad. And I'll spoon feed them every day. Come on. We are, we are, we are parents who think we are good, right? We do our best. How much more is a loving God who created us in his image, who wants the best for us, he wants to set you free. And you may not have experienced the healing in your life yet. You may not have yet seen the manifestation of his word, accomplishing what it set out to achieve, but it doesn't mean you give up hope. It doesn't mean that you say, well, God just must want me to have this. God, you know, I, I, I don't know God's mind. I can't speak for God. All I know is that the word has said that we have been set free from sin and we've been set free from, sick, from, from, from sickness. And when we take communion, we remember those two things. That the body that was broken was broken so that your body can be whole and the blood that was shed was shed so that you can be free of sin. And it is the daily reminder that we are free from sin and from sickness. And when we live our lives thinking that God wants me to be sick, it's like saying God wants me to live with sin. If God doesn't want you to live with sin, he doesn't want you to live with sickness. I don't know God's mind. God uses our suffering, but I think we're supposed to contend for healing at all times. I think that's what his word wants us to do. I think it wants us to have the faith. And then we live, you know, we, we uh, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to just, I'm going to keep going. See, when we read these miraculous stories, we see that, Jesus responded no matter of what level of faith people brought. The things that these people had in common, all three of them had the same thing in common, that their faith was in the correct person. Their faith was placed in the right person. I think Jesus is communicating that the object of your faith is more important than the amount. Jesus is impressed by great faith. He wants you to have great faith. But as long as your faith is in the right person, he can do the rest.
Jesus wants to respond in the midst of little faith when we pray and ask him to provide the rest. And when we bring little faith, Jesus responds and our faith begins to grow. Did you know that fear is faith? It's just faith in the wrong thing. When you have fear, here's what's happening. When you experience fear, we believe the lie that what is coming against us is stronger than the one who saves us. That's when we get fearful. That what I'm experiencing is stronger than the one who can save me from it. And we experience fear. You're placing your faith in the wrong thing. But when you put your faith in the right thing, you put your faith in the person of Jesus, he responds to that faith. Where is your faith this morning? Has it been placed in your past experiences? What you've, what you've had up to this point? Is your faith rooted in fear? Is your faith in modern medicine? I believe God gave us medicine. But medicine can't set you free. Jesus sets you free. Or is your faith in the person of Jesus who already paid for your healing, already set you free from sin, already gave you the Holy Spirit? He has said the word, church. And now it's time to reposition our lives to live according to that truth. I'm going to ask Christina to come up. And we're going to pray for people in just a minute. And I'm going to ask, um, I've asked some, some gentlemen to go to the back of the room. And they're going to be back there with some anointing oil. And they're going to pray over you if you need, if you need healing, if you want somebody to pray over you. But let me build your faith just a little bit more before we do this, okay? We know Jesus is no longer physically walking on the earth, but we have access to Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, that the church is now the full embodiment of Jesus. Let me, let me read you this in Ephesians chapter 1. And I, I never really understood this in Ephesians. But Ephesians chapter 1 is known as the power chapter. And it's because Paul uses four different words for power. Just in these short snippet of verses. And if you were reading this passage that we're about to read, if you were reading it in the original Greek, you would just hear bombs exploding all around you because it's just that much power. It's just going off one after another. He uses four different words. He uses the word dynamis, which is where we get the word dynamite. And it's that explosive, awesome, moving, shaking power of God. He uses the word kratos, which is this word to describe kind of this Herculean, undefeatable strength, this mighty strength. He uses the word for authority that this, that the centurion used. It's the word exousa and it re- it's the word for all authority that God has all authority. He uses the word ikis, and it's also for power and might. And Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, 18 through 23. Are you ready? He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Woo! You can just, just leave the piano off online. You, that, that's okay. I'm going to start over. Are you ready? I pray. No, everybody, bring it back in. Bring it back in. Sorry to give you a heart attack. You're going to have to go to the doctor. Make sure everything's okay. No, we're here for, we're here for healing today, so the heart attack's going to get fixed in just a minute. All right, here it goes. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. And his incomparably great power, dynamis, for us who believe, that's the word pistuo, the power is the same as the mighty strength, Icus, Kratos, he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, exousa, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Bam, 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 bam. Jesus, Paul's just explosion, explosion, explosion. God has all authority. He has all power. He has all might. He is the one who's in control of everything. And then he says this. And God placed all of these things under his feet and appointed to him and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul is saying 
explosion, explosion, explosion. All of this power and might and authority. God has appointed Jesus the head over the church. And the church is the fullness of that power. The church is the fullness of that authority. Because Jesus is the head of the church. And we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't a theology that says you and I can heal. You and I have the power. You and I have the authority. We do it in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus is the head of the church. The church is now the fullness of Jesus. And has been given all authority and power. He said the word. Do you believe it? So what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time in prayer as Christina plays. And we're going to do what the Bible says to do in James chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. It says this. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of our Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. He said the word, church. It's out there. It's not going to drop to the ground. It's going to accomplish what it's set to achieve. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person is powerful and affected. Here's what I want to do. I want everybody to stand up. And if you have a need, if you have a prayer, if you need, if you need, if you need a miracle today, this isn't church. Here's what I, I don't want you to, I don't want you to confuse this. This isn't, this is an emotional hype. This is not, this is not an emotional hype. I'm not trying to hype you up to get you excited for something that isn't going to happen. Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to build your faith and I want you to put your confidence in the words that God has said. And believe that we have the Holy Spirit. And just like James 5 says, it says to confess your sins to one another. I believe a lot of the times what holds us back from experiencing healing is that there's, we've put a, we've placed a barrier in front of ourselves and God. And we haven't surrendered that to God. We say, Jesus, I want you and I want this. Jesus, I want your healing, I want your touch, and I want to keep doing what I want to keep doing. And Jesus says, you can't have both. It's either me or it's not me. What do you want? So as we pray, we've got a bunch of men and women along the back, and they've got some oil that they're going to anoint you with, but let me pray over you, and then you can make your way back. Jesus, we expectantly anticipate we're so excited for what you want to do in our lives we place our trust in it we place our faith you are the only one who saves you are the only one who heals and we look to you jesus we put our faith in you not our faith in the fear and here's the thing jesus we bring what faith we have we we give it to you we say we do believe and thank you provide for providing the faith that we don't have we love you, Jesus. We ask for your spirit to move in this place this morning, that revival would break out in our town. We're asking for it in Jesus' name. You can make your way back if you need prayer. Don't hesitate. Just just make your way back. We're going to spend just a few moments. We're going to spend just a few moments in prayer.